musical linguistic objects. Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo. I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon, and today is day 140 of Occupy Wall Street. To begin with, I would like to thank our fellow saloners who either made a direct donation to the salon or who purchased one of my books. Your support is greatly appreciated and goes directly to offsetting some of the expenses associated with these podcasts. And uh, also, I want to uh, send thanks out to uh, you for spreading the word about these podcasts and to helping to continually expand our family here in the salon. You know, uh, we're all in this together, as you well know. Now, uh, for today's program, I should warn you up front that, well, you're going to hear a lot from me today because in addition to my comments about the Occupy movement, which will follow the recording I'm going to play first, well, in addition to that, uh, what I'm going to play for you today is the first uh, of the recordings from last weekend's workshop that Bruce Damer and I led in the L.A. area last Saturday. It uh, looks like I'll be able to play most of what was recorded that day in this and uh, the next two podcasts after this, which I'll try to release a little faster than one a week if I can. And as uh, the program turned out on Saturday, I was the first speaker, and so when Bruce followed me, uh, much of his presentation, the first part of it, was in multimedia format. So it isn't included in this podcast. Uh, However, never fear, I'll be passing along the links to those video pieces, and you can watch them on YouTube. So uh, by the time the next three podcasts are completed, you'll have probably heard about 80% of the material that was presented that day. So, now, without any further ado, here is a recording of the opening session of a workshop led by Bruce Damer and myself on the 28th of January, 2012, and it was titled, Terrence McKenna, Beyond 2012. I, too, would like to welcome you here and point out that probably the most important thing that's going to take place today is meeting other people. I mean, that's what these little things are about. And as much as I don't like leaving my cave and I don't like to travel uh, uh, and the Internet's great, uh, it still falls way short of something like this where we can meet each other. And what I found is that rather than uh, us send everybody the mailing list because everybody doesn't even want to be on an emailing list, is that get together with each other and and try to meet somebody that you didn't know when you got here, get their email address. You'd be amazed at how something like this can turn into a long-term friendship. You know, you never know what can happen in these conferences, and it's all good. So I I really appreciate you coming here today. Bruce and I will, uh, this is the the first of the 2012 events uh, that Bruce and I will be doing, and Bruce is going to be doing a lot more than me. Uh, we will be doing one at Esalen, Burning Man, and then there's uh, going to be some kind of a spectacular close of the year <laughs> to be announced. But uh, uh, this is uh, special to me for many reasons, that uh, this particular room is one where uh, Terrence spoke several times. And it's also where we held the wave, uh, and, and I always call it, it was a combination of a wake and a rave 
for Terrence, and uh, there were several there were several hundred people here. Uh, we were uh, a bigger crowd than this. There were no chairs. We were all just crammed in. And uh, those of you who have heard my podcast and heard, uh, know the music, the background, the last time Chateau Hayuk played live was right here on this stage for Terrence's Wave. So this room has a lot of uh, meaning for, uh, for many of us for many reasons. Now today what we're going to do is we're going to uh, kind of split the day into two parts. This morning, uh, or I should say the first half of the day, is going to be uh, a lot about Terrence McKenna, a lot of tributes. And then the afternoon, we're going to kind of spin off and uh, talk about ideas that Terrence has uh, placed into our minds and things that uh, uh, he gets you to think about. And we we don't want to make a saint of Terrence. And as uh, Dennis's book will point out at the end of the year, uh, he definitely had feet of clay. But we do want to honor uh, what Terrence has done in bringing us all together one way or another. Uh, my part is uh, uh, this morning I'm really not going to talk about Terrence, even though the first half is about Terrence. I'm going to uh, talk about how we got here and then this afternoon uh, where it's maybe possible to go. But when we talk about how we got here, uh, I know a lot of you, uh, most of you I'm meeting in person for the first time, uh, many of you I've met online, and of course, uh, Terrence McKenna has been the draw, even for the people that, that uh, didn't know Bruce and I ahead of time. But uh, Terrence, uh, the first time I saw him, uh, and most of you in this room probably have known about Terrence McKenna a lot longer than me. I'd, I only first heard about him in a Mondo 2000 uh, article in uh, 1994. And so uh, I was a very late comer to this whole uh, Terrence McKenna archaic revival. And that's what he was talking about at the first workshop uh, I went to that he gave was the archaic revival. And uh, if we've listened to Terrence M enough, you've heard him talk about that. But I like to uh, dig in a little bit and see what did, what did he really mean by an archaic revival. And uh, this is just my take on it, but I think he was talking more about uh, the type of consciousness that prevailed in archaic times, uh, not necessarily uh, living in an archaic society. I, I think the tech was, is very important right now. But here we are today in... Essentially, uh, no matter what our cultural background is, we're living in a Western uh, Judeo-Christian society. And so how did we get here uh, from an archaic mind to the society we're in right now? And I took a look back as when, how far back can we go to say that, well, this is an archaic society? Uh, my particular uh, decision on the thing was it happened back uh, several thousand years ago. Uh, and came to a, a head uh, with the mysteries of Eleusis. And the guy that first talked about it that I heard about uh, before I read The Road to Eleusis by Hoffman and Ruck was uh, Joseph Campbell. Joseph Campbell uh, has these, uh, this great series called Mythos, Mythos 1 and Mythos 2. Uh, they're available uh, at Netflix. And each of them have five episodes. And the first uh, five episodes are about the foundation of the human mind and he starts 200,000 years ago and through the first four programs and then program five he says okay now how did this all come to a head what is the culmination of 200,000 years of humans uh, starting to uh, recite poetry and sing and dance and create works of art uh, and he he uh, Campbell said in his opinion the high point of of the ancient world was Eleusis, were the rites at Eleusis. And 
Uh, I want to read what Cicero wrote about that, and you'll see where I'm getting to by the time I get done to this, uh, this one paragraph. Cicero wrote, and this is, uh, he wrote this, I think, about 100 B.C. Uh, For it appears to me that among the many exceptional and divine things your Athens has produced and contributed to human life, nothing is better than those mysteries. For by means of them we have transformed from a rough and savage way of life to the state of humanity and have been civilized, just as they are called initiations. So in actual fact, we have learned the fundamentals of life and have grasped the basis not only for living with joy, but also dying with better hope. And those of us who have uh, you know, been studying the psychedelic world for a long time can definitely start seeing some pieces there of a psychedelic mindset. And uh, Hoffman and, and Ruck wrote this book, uh, The Road to Eleusis, that, uh, at least for me, has very conclusively proven that essentially Eleusis, the mysteries of Eleusis, were, uh, well, the, the central part of it was an acid trip, basically. And so it was a definitely a psychedelic society that they were creating. And at Eleusis, then, and the mysteries went on for several thousand years. There were periods where it went down and there wasn't much and it'd come down and up. But this is the rites of Eleusis is where Western civilization came out of. Socrates, Plato, uh, you know, Aristotle, they all went through the rites. So almost every one of the ancient philosophers that we've read of went through these rites of the mysteries of Eleusis. And Campbell said that the, here's what he said about them, the essence of the spiritual experience, and the rites of Eleusis were a spiritual experience, the essence intended at Eleusis is that of shifting consciousness from the purely phenomenological aspect of one's life to the spiritual, the deep, the energetic, eternal aspect. And that's Joseph Campbell. Again, it doesn't take uh, any reading between the lines to see that what they're really talking about is a shift in consciousness. And, of course, at Eleusis and in, in uh, today's uh, psychedelic community, uh, a lot of people are shifting their consciousness. And what we want to talk about today, of course, is at the end of the day is uh, once you shift it, uh, where you shift it to? And then what do you do once you shift it into high gear? You know, the, <laughs> there's a little trick there. But uh, I think that we're all here today because somehow we have come into this world with a, an archaic uh, resonance in our mind. We, we, I think, do have sort of an archaic mindset, and that's what draws us to things like psychedelics and Terrence McKenna and, and people like that, is they were talking about things that, that have been, uh, well, they've been a no-no for a long time. And I think going back into the history is what Terence is talking about as archaic. And, of course, there's a question, would we be here and know about Terence if there was no such thing as a war on drugs? Because when, when Terence first started in, in uh, the 70s and 80s, and, and we, a lot of us have heard a lot of these old tapes now, uh, it's pretty obvious that there, you know, there was no World Wide Web. There, there was no uh, Arrowhead. You know, I, I only learned about psychedelics in the 80s. And I was in Dallas, Texas. And in Dallas, Texas, in 86, you didn't find out much about psychedelics or pot or anything else. Uh, back then, uh, you could get 30 years in prison for one single joint, as a guy did in Dallas at the time I was living there. So these things were not talked about, particularly outside of the West Coast, where Terrence was going up and down the coast. And he was really the, the person that started bringing this back uh, after uh, you know, the Nixon's war on drugs. 
So I started looking at the war on drugs, and we've got Nixon. You go back to the 30s when the stamp tax for marijuana. But if you really want to see when the war on drugs began and start figuring out why it began, uh, I'm going to put a date on the beginning of the war on drugs of 425 BCE because the rights had been going on for almost, well, probably 2,000 years at that point in time. But at that point in time is the first uh, known record of, of a law being passed, the state law, because the rights were secret. Nobody was supposed to talk about them. But what happened is the jet setters of the day uh, found out how to make this little potion, and they were having some parties. And so it became a, a, an offense against the state to do anything about the mysteries, to talk about them, to, to take them out of context. And that was in 425 B.C., but in around 300 B.C., the state actually took control of the rights. And that's when it got expanded uh, terrifically to where uh, anybody could go to the rights of Eleusis, uh, even slaves. The only requirement was is that you had no blood on your hands. You hadn't murdered someone. And so at that time, they really expanded it. And I did a little uh, research about what the rights were like because they didn't really uh, talk about them much. But around that time, in that, that 300 to 200 B.C., uh, the description that uh, Wasson and Ruck give of the rights to me sounded like a horror show. Uh, these people would be fasting and they'd have, have processions. But the night of the mysteries, they would go to the temple and they'd, they'd get dosed with... Uh, with whatever it was, we don't know for sure, but it was an, an acid-like substance. And then there was all this, this uh, there was music and sound and light shows in the temple. Basically, I think they just scared the hell out of these people and gave them a bad trip. And then they were in line, you know, the God spoke. And back those days, if you remember, the temples were essentially like the Federal Reserve. They were the central bank, and everybody stored all their treasures there. And so if you were scared out of your socks because you had a bad acid trip at the temple, you weren't about to go up there and rob the place. Now, this is all my own take on it. <laughs> and I'm expanding it for my novel I'm working on. But uh, you can read in between the lines your own way on those things. But I think there was something like that that maybe took place. But remember what Campbell said. It was a shifting of consciousness, the, the archaic minds shifting to the logos. And we're going to play a soundbite here in just a second. But what I want to propose, and then I'm going to kind of open the floor and, uh, and see if some of you would like to uh, contribute to how you got here and why you're here, and see if maybe we can find some community among us, some common threads, because I think that... that what happened is the Logos, that was this voice in the back of our heads back in pre-Homeric times, got silenced. And what we need to do is to start listening to these little voices. Now, of course, you know, they say, well, you start talking about voices in your head, and you're going to wind up uh, restrained and in an institution. But uh, I really think there is something there. It's intuition. It's whatever you want to call it. But the question is, can we reinstitute the logos from the archaic mind? We can release this thing once again. I mean, the logos can be unleashed once again. And the voice that spoke to Plato and Parmenides and Heraclitus, that voice can speak again in the minds of modern people. And when it does, uh, 
the alienation will be ended because we will have become the alien. <laughs> we're here because we're aliens. Now, if, like me, you've gone home for the holidays in past and you sit around the Thanksgiving dinner table and your relatives look at you and think you're an alien, well, there's a reason for it. And uh, I, I don't know how many of you have really just realized that it should be waking up right this moment that we are aliens and we are an alien group. We have descended from the mothership. We landed here. It was a crash landing. And it's taken us all these damn years to get assembled. We were supposed to get together, us group here, we were supposed to get together 15 years ago. And, uh, you know, we all got lost when we parachuted down, assembled. Some of the ships crashed. We lost a few pilots. Uh, we lost a few members of our crew here. But I want to welcome the, uh, this alien group because uh, I'm part of it. This is why we uh, assembled. And here we are today, finally. We're, we're all together. I'm happy to announce that the other groups have found uh, each other for the most part. And I've just received word from our home planet that after today, our mission is to find the others. I think you've heard that before. So right now, <laughs> since we've kind of found each other, I'd like to, to see if we can have a, just a few of you uh, in briefly just stand up and uh, give us some ideas of, of how Terrence drew you here, why you're here, uh, a little bit of, uh, and some of you can tell about your paths, and so we can start learning uh, about how arduous our trip was to get here, but now that we found one another, we don't want to let go. So uh, who would like to start off? Anybody? Uh? Oh, yes. Um, well, just like a lot of you, you know, we've all been uh, aliens and feeling very, very alert and very tuned in to what's going on. Okay, can you hear me now? Okay, great. Uh, it's been a long time. I've uh, Many years ago, when I was little, I had ships all around me and all that. And then through the years, going to Joshua Tree in the deserts, I've had continuing experiences. And um, going in and out of portals and whatever else. And to me, that was normal. It was just like, in fact, being on this planet, it was like strange. But uh, those experiences, lots has happened. Uh, I think that... Uh, We've been real open. I know I've been real open for a long time, receiving messages, automatic writing, you know, channelings and spacing out, tripping out. And then there was a small phase, a short phase, where I felt like I had a bag over my head or something and I couldn't hear. And what really drew, drew me here, because I don't make this long, uh, is that there was a feeling that where is everybody? I know you're somewhere. <laughs> I know I could find you. And there have been friends like um, people back there, which I can't remember right now, right? Kate, Kate and Connie. But it's time for us to get together. And for me, it was like a draw. It was like a thing. And Connie sent a message, and I go, yes, I've got to go. I don't even know why, but I've got to go. Of course, we all knew Terrence. But it's a wake-up call. We know who we are. We know we're weird. We've been weird all our life, and it's not going to stop. In fact, I like weird. So I think that's pretty much, you know, in, in the edited version, it's time. It's time for us to use what we know, to utilize each other's talents, and be able to draw upon what we know. 
you know, and trust it as we were talking. We've got to trust it. So that's why I'm here and I'm very grateful to be here because it's lovely and also the people who are speaking are great and we're family and it feels right. And as I said, so enjoy the weird ride because it's going to get even more weird. Thank you. And, and I do agree. We, we really are family. Uh, we have somebody else here that uh, I, I'd like to give as many people a chance to talk as we can. And uh, then if we run out of time here in this little first little session, there's going to be two or three other times today you'll have a chance because I'd like to make sure everybody has a chance to get their two cents in here. So. Francisco, and I'm so glad to be here as well. Uh, I was one of the fortunate few to grow up in San Francisco near the hate, so that said a lot about where I was coming from. I think I was born into it. But what since that time, you know, I've lived in spiritual communes and all that, but always felt this urge to find out and make this connection that, you know, we're here talking about. The interesting thing is that every time I get together with people like you, uh, psychedelic conference where I met Bruce, for example, in Santa Cruz about a year or so ago, uh, instant communication. It's like we're like right in tune. Went to the Amazon, did the ayahuasca thing. Again, it's a spiritual community that gathers. That's why I love to be around people like you, because to me, it's an instant connection. We are family. So continue that. Continue looking for your other brethren and sistren, and, you know, just enjoy. Thank you. Thank you. So uh, any more? Yeah, come on up. That uh, just so that you know a little bit more of the schedule today, we're going to uh, be kind of going around, hearing from each other. Then we're going to, uh, Bruce is going to have a couple multimedia presentations. And then at lunchtime, right after we eat lunch, is going to be the premiere of Ken Adams' uh, film about Terrence, which I've seen twice already and can't wait to see again. So we've got a, a big day ahead of us there, too. Thank you. Um, my name's Phil. I'm from Freeport, Maine. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. And it just turned out that this conference coincided with a visit I'd already planned to um, visit my family out here on the West Coast, and I just hopped on that synchronicity and sent in my money. I have a story of early introduction to psychedelics, then 30-year hiatus, raising a family, working a job, um, <clears throat> and then read Daniel Pinchbeck, and that re reunited me with um, mushrooms, and that led me to the psychedelic salon, which led me to Terrence McKenna. So thank you so much for that. I heard him speak, and it was like kaboom, um, instant rapport with his ideas and his presentation. Uh, <clears throat> certainly agree with the whole theme of alienation and the pun alien nation. Um, and the logo spoke to me at one point perfectly straight uh, walking down the street where I wanted to look up in a tree and see if there was somebody playing a joke. Um, <clears throat> it said, you are here to play attention. <laughs> oh, I love that. <laughs> Talking about meeting people at conferences, uh, 
it was at uh, the last conference Terrence gave, the one that, that Ken uh, produced uh, along with Manuel over at the All Chemicals is where I met Connie and Bruce. And so, uh, you know, these conferences, uh, Bruce and I have had a, a long friendship uh, ever since then. Uh, so, you know, we are family, so let's get to know each other. So, yeah. Hi. Good morning. Uh, my name is Kevin, and um, I got turned on when I was in high school. Uh, Thanks to Jim Morrison, um, the, the, mo- the movie The Doors came out, and um, I think I was the first in my peer group. I was like, that, what he took, was what I'm into. So I took LSD before cannabis and all that, and um, fortunately I was living in Florida, so mushrooms were plentiful uh, in the summer, so I had that experience. Then a friend of mine played Terrence's Alien Dreamtime CD, and it just floored me just freaked me out. It scared me because I grew up fundamentalist Christian, like Jehovah's Witness, really. So like, you know, really scared. I was like, is this satanic or what? But I was into it. And I read this book and I'm a huge reader. So that all just kept going and uh, avalanching. And um, for a time, I lived in Japan. And uh, I was fortunate in Japan that mushrooms were legal, dried from Switzerland, from Swiss labs, and DMT was legal. uh, So I could indulge in those and you know, but I was alienated because I'm in a different culture. And then I was listening to the internet radio. I didn't have an iPod even then or MP3. And I found your podcast, Lorenzo's podcast, I think 2005, even 2004. I don't know. But I, I caught it and it just, I got back in the community. I took a hiatus and I've had a family and I've had that and I, I'm a teacher. So I, I did my career thing, but it just kept going. And uh, the message, the, the logos, the whole thing, it, it's... Um, it's been inspiration. It's just changed my life pattern. It's been my uh, mind as well as everybody here, I'm sure, uh, community. And uh, I think everybody, you know, for talking where I get to see you or meet you. I've met some great people already. So thank you. Thank you. And uh, the, the creator of Alien Dreamtime happens to be here because it's Ken Adams who did the film we're going to see today. So... <laughs> Yeah, come on up. And, and uh, in a minute, I, I'm going to see how many, who, who heard of Ten- Terrence the farthest back? So uh, start thinking when you first heard of Terrence. Hi, my name is Patrick, and I'm from Iowa, so definitely from all over. Okay, another. Um, and I study philosophy at Loyola Marymount in their master's program there. Uh, so your comments, uh, thank you for the introduction, Lorenzo. Uh, first time meeting you and Bruce. Thank you very much. And everybody, can't wait to talk to you. I'm going to make this really brief. So um, it really struck home to think about the Logos in the way that I've learned it through the dialogues, Plato's dialogues, which is definitely um, an enactment of Logos that you should get into, I think, to pitch that for a second. But Logos, the most um, literal translation of Logos is gathering together rather than language, reason, etc. And so I think you should take seriously, and we should all take seriously, because we're all here, I think, because of Logos. I think it's all present within us. It's a shared thing, and I think that is ultimately what brings us together. I think each and every one of us has tapped into that. Everybody else has it, and we want everybody else to tap into that. Uh, so thank you for that great introduction, and I can't wait to meet everybody else. I've met Kyle. He's been awesome. So, yeah, looking forward to it. Welcome. Welcome. Yeah, come on up, my name is Eric. Um, I am the owner of Guy and Botanicals, and the blog is erockx one uh, I wanted to be a hip-hop DJ when I was 15 and got a chance to play at a, a rave, and someone gave me LSD, and I wanted to be a techno DJ. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, 
I got. Uh, I was in uh, the Venice Beach area a lot, and uh, I got. Uh, I heard about Terrence McKenna, and uh, I went to a a conference he gave, and it was all on the I Ching. Like, where's the mushrooms? Where's the DMT? Where's everything? <laughs> it was all on the I Ching, and so I sort of lost interest and rediscovered them several years later. And Lorenzo and Bruce and I've been hearing them talk about doing this event for about... Didn't you know Tim Leary? Three, yes. I did some audio conversions and a lot of um, free work. Tim liked free work. <laughs> and uh, so I did some graphic design, sound and lighting for him when I was 17, 18 years old. It was awesome. But it's changed my life and I'm happy to be here and meet everybody. That's it. Who who heard Terrence? Uh, let's see who heard Terrence knew about Terrence, and we won't count ten, Ken. Doesn't get to count. <laughs> who heard Terrence in the eighties? <laughs> wow, look at that, man! It makes me. Anybody hear him in the seventies? Whoa, that's the record. I think that uh, uh, I just learned this the other day that I think that uh, maybe the first uh, a real way to get his name out into the general public outside of the little uh, uh, lecture circuit he was in was when Robert Anton Wilson mentioned uh, the time wave in Cosmic Trigger. And I think that was in 79 or, or maybe before. So I, some, it was in the 70s. And that probably got him uh, really going. Uh, I know that uh, Mary C. Got, got to hear him at the uh, talk in, uh, what was it called? Is UC Santa Barbara. That, and Everybody was there. It was Albert Hoffman, Richard Evans Schultes, uh, uh, Alan, uh, uh, Andrew Weil, that's his name, and O'Leary. All the, the general suspects were there. And uh, I, I didn't know Mary C. then, but uh, uh, they were up, she was up there with some friends, and they still talk about it because there was a cancellation on the program. And somebody everybody wanted to see couldn't show up, and, you know, he's not here, and everyone, oh. But we've got this guy we, we're filling in. We think you'll like him. His name is Terrence McKenna. And to this day, these people don't remember anything that Hoffman or Schultes or Leary or Sasha or any of those said. They just remembered McKenna, and it was a really uh, big break for him. So is anybody else at that conference in 83? That Oh, Okay. So uh, let me ask, I want to get Mateo up here for a minute to, to tell a story that uh, uh, about an involvement. He's known Terrence for a while, and, and uh, he, he uh, went through uh, some hoops to get this book to Terrence. We, I didn't know Mateo back then, but in uh, 99, September, I think it was, there was the All Chemical Arts meeting in Hawaii. And Terrence is walking around with this book. And Mary C. kept saying, we've got to see the name of this book. You know, it's, it, he's dying and he's still reading books. We've, it must be an important book. So I'll let Mateo pick up the story now. Thank you, because he's going to finish it. Um, I'm a perspiring writer, as some of you know. This is the book. I'm not plugging it, even though it's for sale over there. I will plug Connie's CDs. They're over there for sure. But... Um, I've been teaching at the Santa Barbara Writers' Conference for over 20 years. <clears throat> and when I was a student there, I read a short horror story about a guy who overdosed on psychedelics and lost his mind. And when it was finished, all these acid heads came out of the woodwork. And this little old lady, she was like 97 years old. She was a psychologist, and she did some of the original LSD studies in Hawaii. And she had these bright blue eyes. 
And she wanted my story, so I gave it to her, and she started sending me cassettes of Terrence, who I'd never heard of. So I went to the Entheobotany Seminar in 98, and I met Terrence, and I told him the story, and I gave him a copy of the, uh, the collection that's over there. And he dug it, because he's always, he's always had that literary bent. So uh, I went to Palenque for four years, and um, when he was passing, my novel, the one I just showed you, was coming out. And I couldn't make it to the conference, and I wanted him to have a copy because I knew he was getting close to the end. So uh, a brother, a lot of you people may know, who goes by Paloka, the, the day that the books came from the publisher, he called me 10 o'clock that night, and he, and he says, I'm going to the, the alchemical. I says, shit, when are you going? He says, I'm leaving in the morning. And I said, when are you going to bed? He says, I'm not. I'm staying up all night. And I was in San Diego, and he was in L.A. So I said, I'm on my way. So I got in my car. The book that Terrence got was the absolute very first book from the printing. I got a little care package for Terrence. I drove up. I met Paloka. We hung for a couple of hours. I gave him the book and everything. I turned around, got back home. It was 6 o'clock in the morning. I slammed a whole shitload of coffee, went to work all day, and I got the book off to Terrence, which felt really good because we had a, a nice connection. And then... <laughs> so we've been following Terrence around, trying to fix, see, see the name on the book and everything. But the closing ceremony at the Alchemical Arts Conference, uh, at the very last thing, and it's the very last time I saw Terrence, is that it was in a room about like this, I think, actually about this size, and we put Terrence, <laughs> it must have been awkward for him, he had to sit on a chair in the middle of the room, and then we all laid down on the floor with our heads toward him, while Connie played for uh, played music, and we all sent all this this love and harmony and stuff to him. And it's it's literally the last time I saw Terrence. And so when I hear Connie's music, of course, I think of Terrence. And he was sitting there in the chair holding Mateo's book. Uh, of course, well, I didn't know Matt then or Mateo. And so a few weeks later, I was at an event, and uh, there's this really loud, obnoxious guy next to me who, who was just irritating the hell out of me until he opened his bag and his book fell out. And we said, hey, where'd you get that? And he said, well, I wrote it. And uh, <laughs> so we've been friends ever since, too. <laughs> but he's still pretty irritating. <laughs> so does somebody else have some uh, Terrence remembrances they'd like to add right now? Or uh, anybody else? Uh, any, any things like that? Oh, Connie, yeah. You just reminded me, uh, at that conference I was playing the space bass, which we'll hear later, and everybody in the room went into prayer and intention with the tones, and we used the tones to send them to, you know, his condition. And I got home, and, you know, it felt wonderful. It just felt so great. And I have a great psychic facilitator. It's a fantastic sight. And I said, so what happened? What happened? She said, it actually changed it. And I said, you're kidding. She said, but, you know, he was so used to it, and he was so ready to go that he put it back the way it was because he was so used to it. And I went, okay, well, <laughs> just a little tidbit. It, that will tie into his, uh, that story ties in quite well. In fact, uh, I haven't told Bruce I'm going to do this, but you want to talk about what you saw, the vision you had during that time? Go ahead. We're, we're lying on the floor. I had, you know, you could do anything you want. The intention was you could send him healing energy. You could, you know, imagine meeting him in the thereafter. You could do anything you wanted uh, while Connie played. And I just lay down and I have a kind of brain that, as soon as my head hits the, the ground, 
the virtual world just it just starts. Um, I don't have to have taken anything, and so as soon as my head hit that carpet, uh, the room cleared. I had my eyes closed. The room was empty. It was an infinite green plane, and there was Terence. I was an observer. There was Terence sitting kind of cross-legged in his way, and I thought, okay, um, this is this is the start of something. So I just fell into that that space, and I heard a whirring sound. And I looked up, I sort of took my camera and looked up, and there was this dot coming down, and it sort of resolved into an egg shape. And it, as it got closer, it was sort of started to shine in the sunlight, uh, the virtual sunlight, and a little bejeweled. And I realized, oh, it's it's a Fabergé egg mobile. <laughs> and it just came to rest, and it was whir, 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 and it came to rest. Right, ne- right beside Terrence, he sort of look, looked at it, and he unfolded himself in the way he would, and he uh, got himself up, you know, kind of like mounting a horse, uh, Colorado kid, you know. Got in the back. It was a nice plush seat. And in the front, there was this sort of sweeping windscreen with this unseen little thing in there. And uh, gear was shifted, and the thing shook, and, and it went up and whir, 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 and up threw into the azure veil. It just sort of disappeared. And I thought, okay. Um, <laughs> and then, uh, you know, Connie gave one last big bow or big stroke, and I sort of popped out of it. Uh, and then later on, the, this, these are the last words that I spoke to Terrence personally. I said, I, I came up to him as we were all, the conference was leaving, and I said, can I, you know, have a, can I have your ear so I can tell you what I saw? And, you know, he's game for that. And so sure, and I explained, and he sort of sat upright and had this grin on his face and looked look, look back at me and said, Ah, the getaway car. <laughs> so um, uh, that, that was, and, and that actually informed some of my later work with Terrence, which you'll see, you'll see uh, in some of these pieces we've produced. You know, uh, I I barely knew Terrence. You know, I met him at conferences and would ask a question or something, and uh, you know, he wouldn't have remembered who I was or anything. And but my my last interaction with Terrence, now that I think about it, we were just talking about. It, I hadn't realized it was really the last uh, words he said to me. Is I was working on the Spirit of the Internet uh, at the time, which you all have a copy of now. And uh, I was really excited. I was right in the middle of doing it, and, and uh, you know, I was still six months from finishing it. But I, I got him aside, and I told him I want to talk to him about the premise of the book, about the, the Teilhard de Chardin's uh, concept of the newosphere and the Internet. And I explained it all to him in really more detail than he wanted to hear. And uh, so I said, well, what do you think about my premise? And he says, well, seems pretty obvious to me. <laughs> and that was the last thing I heard from Darren. <laughs> Seems pretty obvious to me. So what what we're going to do now is we're going to adjust the lighting in the room. And rather than me introduce Bruce, because uh, that, as you'll see in just a moment, would be a very complicated uh, thing to do. Uh, Bruce has had more lives than, than, than the nine lived cats. And uh, they've all been uh, exciting and, and uh, very uh, artistic in many ways. So what I'd like to do is if we can... Uh, Lower the lights. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. 
And if you would like to lower your own lights right now and watch the video that Bruce was about to introduce, you can click over to YouTube. Uh, assuming, of course, that you aren't driving to work or something like that right now. But if you're at a computer, you can go to the Notes from the Psychedelic Salon blog, which you can get to via www.psychedelicsalon.us. And uh, in the program notes for this podcast today, you'll find not just Bruce's personal video embedded, but also the two videos about Terrence McKenna that Bruce created as well. Uh, and uh, those three pieces took up a good portion of uh, Bruce's part of the morning session of our workshop. Uh, the, the pieces actually are titled, uh, Who is Bruce? Terrence McKenna Life Stream and Terrence on the Natch. And uh, I'll leave it up to you to watch those three videos before my next podcast, which uh, will pick up right after Ken Adams premiered his new video about Terrence McKenna. And in my next podcast, I'll be telling you a lot more about Ken's wonderful film, uh, as well as a, a way that maybe you can use it to help find some of the others in your own hometown. So now I want to again pass along a few thoughts about the Occupy movement. And uh, first of all, I should mention how heartened I am about the number of positive messages that I've received about my including Occupy News in these podcasts. Uh, apparently, all of this talk over the years about expanding our consciousness has helped us to become better aware of all the changes that are taking place in our world and of how truly interconnected we all are. Now, if you've been following the movement more closely than just what the corporate news services want you to know, you've uh, already heard about the suspicions of possible police agent provocateurs infiltrating the uh, black bloc actions and uh, even attacking occupied journalists who are feeding live video streams to those of us who can't be there in person. And uh, you've no doubt also been following the events from the London Stock Exchange to De Des Moines, uh, Iowa, to small towns in Nevada and elsewhere, and uh, particularly back in Egypt. Uh, there's hardly a corner of the globe where there isn't uh, this uh, new vibe that's being felt and acted on. And uh, here in the States, one of the main focal points of the current phase of the Occupy movement is the focus on mortgage fraud that the banks perpetrated on unsuspecting homeowners and which has resulted in an epidemic of uh, house foreclosures and other uh, problems like that in this country. In fact, uh, I read recently that there are more foreclosed and vacant houses in the state of Florida than there are homeless people in that state. Uh, so, hey, what's wrong with that picture, huh? And just to give you an idea, a small idea of some of the more positive aspects of the Occupy movement right now, I'm going to play just a few minutes of audio from a video clip that I recorded just today from the live video stream of a young woman journalist in Los Angeles who goes by the handle Occupy Freedom LA on the uh, Ustream.tv network. And uh, if you haven't watched her stream yet, I highly recommend it. Along with uh, Tim Poole and a few of my other favorite journalists, I've embedded Freedom Stream on a permanent page on my OccupySalon.us blog, OccupySalon.us. Uh, that's where I also post uh, just this Occupy segment of my podcast from the Psychedelic Salon in case that you uh, just want to replay just the Occupy part. 
Anyway, uh, that was uh, kind of a long introduction to this soundbite, which is of a man talking uh, at a rally in L.A., uh, just going on right right as we speak, actually, uh, and it was supported by the Occupy movement. And here's what he had to say about what is being called the mortgage crisis and uh, or the foreclosure crisis. Politically, uh, that will probably lead to major national uh, 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 legal uh, decisions uh, and or legislation uh, to put a stop uh, to a lot of their fraudulent uh, policies. And when I say fraudulent, everyone knows about uh, the fact that the banks uh, are not being regulated sold off a lot of the mortgages that they held uh, to other investors. And so they illegally have foreclosed on many of these 12 million homes that they've already snatched, number one. But number two, they have become very illegal uh, uh, and fraudulent uh, in their efforts to dispossess homeowners uh, who uh, they have often uh, suckered into believing that they were helping uh, to rewrite their mortgages. And they have found systematic ways, systematic ways to trip up homeowners in these programs and snatch their properties because all this time they have been under very little scrutiny or control by anyone. And they've gotten used to it. And we're saying that that has to stop. You know, this whole uh, process of dispossession of homeowners uh, is nationwide and hits every community. But in particular, it hits, it hits uh, communities of color. It hits communities where people where unemployment is already extremely high. It hits these communities with, with a far greater effect. Particularly in communities of color, the homes often uh, were only acquired after several generations of effort to put together enough money to be able to afford to buy a home. And often against the, the strictures of redlining, uh, which meant that often the family had to raise enough money to actually buy the house out, outright or close to do that, or have massive uh, down payments in or, order to get into the housing market. The banks pretended, starting around the year 2002, that they were going to uh, give people they had previously redlined a chance to own a home like anyone else. But the truth is that they were using that uh, mechanism of opening up a, a broader range of, of people to purchase houses actually to put pressure on the prices of houses, and it was only one of a series of mechanisms that were used to artificially inflate the cost of housing across the board. And that is why, once that bubble burst, and, and the economy began to spiral down, the entire economy, causing a loss of at least 10 million jobs, the collapse of, of uh, thousands uh, of, of workplaces uh, and businesses across the country and even globally. Once they, they, they found that that bubble burst, the homeowners, those who they weren't able to outright dispossess, were then stuck with mortgages that were hyperinflated. And that is what they're still paying on all these years later, five and six years later, they're paying inflated rates, monthly payments on homes that have dropped sometimes by 50% or more in market value. This is a massive social crime. We are saying, we are saying, we are saying that corporate crime has reached such levels of outrage in this country that the citizenry has to organize itself now 
to demand, number one, that they be fully prosecuted. Every single one of them responsible for this mess needs to be prosecuted. Number two, the banks need to immediately stop this foreclosure process throughout the country. Number three, they need to help those uh, who are still in their homes to stay in their homes. Number four, they need to uh, uh, be, be required, required to make restitution to those who they illegally and fraudulently did out of their properties and seized the number one thing that, that, that many families will ever have in their lifetime, which is a home. And all of this is about mega bucks, mega bucks. And it's time for the buck to stop here, like at Wells Fargo. It's time for the buck to stop here at the state building. And until this situation is dealt with, we are going to be out here in the streets. We are saying, you know, that when they say leave your property, do not comply. We say occupy. <laughs> occupy. When they say leave, don't comply. We say occupy. 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 And finally. And finally, finally, 12 million homes is more than enough, and it's time for the homeowners to get tough. And our intent is to organize those homeowners as a constituency group. We're saying hold on to your home, occupy your home, fight for your home. You have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. These issues caused a revolution in this country 200 some odd years ago. 200 and some odd years ago, and life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness are being denied to the mass of the citizenry in this country today, and it's not going to be tolerated. So thank you, Carlos the Mailman and others for pulling this rally together. Thanks to all the partners in our coalition that are coming together to fight this phenomenon, and thanks to all the homeowners like Ms. Parker and Bertha Herrera and many others who are beginning to stand up and say that we're going to organize and we're going to resist this and we're going to stand up for our rights. Thank you. Now in just a minute, I'm going to play a conversation that included Harvard University professor Lawrence Lessig and Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Chris Hedges. But first I want to read a few words that Chris Hedges wrote uh, recently after a visit to Canada where basically uh, he found an economic and political situation strangely similar to that of the U.S. And here's part of what he had to say in an article for Truthout titled, What Happened to Canada? And I quote, Corporations have no regard for nation-states. They assert their power to exploit the land and the people everywhere. They play worker off of worker and nation off of nation. They control the political elites in Ottawa as they do in London, Paris, and Washington. This, I suspect, is why the tactics to crush the Occupy movement around the globe have, been, have an eerie similarity. Infiltration, surveillance, the denial of public assembly, physical attempts to eradicate encampments, the use of propaganda and the press to demonize the movement, new draconian laws stripping citizens of basic rights, and increasingly harsh terms of incarceration. 
Our solidarity should be with the activists who march on Tahir Square in Cairo or, or set up in Campamentos in Madrid. These are our true compatriots. The more we shed ourselves of national identity in this fight, the more we grasp that our true allies may not speak our language or embrace our religious and cultural traditions, the more powerful we will become. Those who seek to discredit this movement employ the language of nationalism and attempt to make us fearful of the other. Wave the flag, sing the national anthem, swell with national hubris, be vigilant of the hidden terrorist. My country right or wrong, C.K. Chesterton once wrote, is on the same level as my mother, drunk or sober. <laughs> uh, I go on with uh, Hedges' quote. Our most dangerous opponents, in fact, look and speak like us. They hijack familiar and comforting iconography and slogans to paint themselves as true patriots. They claim to love Jesus, but they cynically serve the function a native bureaucracy serves for any foreign colonizer. The British and the French and earlier the Romans were masters of this game. They recruited local quislings to carry out policies and repression that were determined in London or Paris or Rome. Popular anger was vented against these personages and native group vied with native group in battles for scraps of influence. And when one native ruler was overthrown or, more rarely, voted out of power, these imperial machines recruited a new face. The actual centers of power did not change. The pillage continued. Global financiers are the new colonizers. They make the rules. They pull the strings. They offer the illusion of choice in our carnivals of political theater. But corporate power remains constant and unimpeded. Barack Obama serves the same role as Herod did in Imperial Rome. This is why the Occupy Wall Street movement is important. It targets the center of power, global financial institutions. It deflects attention from the empty posturing in the legislative and executive offices in Washington or London or Paris. The Occupy movement reminds us that until the corporate superstructure is dismantled, it does not matter which member of the native elite is elected or appointed to rule. The Canadian Prime Minister is as much a servant of corporate power as the American President, and replacing either will not alter corporate domination. As the corporate mechanisms of control become apparent to wider segments of the population, discontent will grow further. So will the force employed by our corporate overlords. It will be a long road for us, but we are not alone. There are struggles and brush fires everywhere. And I'll link to the entire article that Chris wrote uh, in the program notes for this podcast in the event that you want to read his essay, and I highly recommend that you do. Now I want to play this conversation with Lawrence Lessig and Chris Hedges that was hosted by Occupy TVNY. And as you'll hear, they each have different approaches for the road ahead. While Lessig is supporting a constitutional convention, uh, as am I, by the way, Chris Hedges thinks that peaceful civil disobedience will be required, as do I, by the way. <laughs> now, uh, here's their conversation. I'm here with Chris Hedges and Lawrence Lessig, who've joined uh, us today at the Occupy the Courts um, team uh, to talk about 
issues of corporate personhood and reform in our current system or outside of it in connection with a uh, uh, corporate personhood event that's taking place today in Foley Square in New York City. So I thought I'd just like to start by asking you both, um, you know, what brings you uh, to the event today, the corporate personhood event? Um, uh, what in your work has brought you to the place that, that you're interested in this event and think it's an important one to be engaging in right now through Occupy or otherwise? I guess I'll start with uh, Professor Lessig. Well, I think that the anniversary, uh, the day of infamy that we're celebrating tomorrow, um, the anniversary of the Supreme Court's decision in Citizens United, is an extraordinarily important moment to, uh, to rally people to recognizing the wide range of reform that's necessary. I'm not somebody who believes that reversing Citizens United gets us to utopia in American democracy. I think American democracy was broken before Citizens United shot it once again. Um, the body was already dead and cold. But um, it is a moment because many people recognize the absurdity in the um, decision and the consequences of the decision. and. And that's the energy we need to rally if we're going to ever reform it and reverse it and take the other steps that are necessary. We've undergone a, a corporate coup d'etat in slow motion, and it's over. Uh, we've lost, and they've won. And the fundamental message of the Occupy movement, which is often criticized for not having demands or having a message, is that they want that coup reversed. And once that coup is reversed, then everything falls into place. Healthcare. Uh, affordable housing, sustainable uh, energy, uh, local banking. Uh, but if you don't shatter that corporate monolith, uh, then uh, all of the reforms that we seek, none of them will come into place. And so by focusing on that issue, on the corporate state, on what the political philosopher Sheldon Woolen calls our system of inverted totalitarianism, um, by which he means that it's not classical totalitarianism. It doesn't find its expression through a demagogue or a charismatic leader, but through the anonymity of the corporate state. That in inverted totalitarianism, you have corporate forces that purport to pay fealty to the Constitution, electoral politics, the iconography and language of American patriotism, and yet internally have seized all of the levers of power so as to render the citizenry impotent. And this is the issue. Uh, Citizens United is a manifestation, as Professor Lessing has pointed out, of uh, a disease that has destroyed the body politic for some time. Um, but it's a pretty flagrant manifestation of that. So do you agree that there's been a coup and that it's over? Well, I do agree that politics in America has been captured by the tiniest slice of America. 0.26% um, of Americans give more than $200 in a political campaign. 0.05% give the maximum amount in a congressional campaign. 0.01%, one out of 1,000, give more than $10,000 in an election cycle. Those are the people with the influence inside of our political system. Um, and uh, though I agree it's important to address the question of corporate personhood and to, and to get that resolved in the right way. If that's all we did, those people would still control American politics. 
in a way that would make American politics still unresponsive to all the issues that I think people on the left and even people on the right want American government to be able to address. So I think that it's absolutely essential that we get people to recognize the way this system is captured by not the 1%, by the fraction of the 1%. Um, and until we reverse that, um, the system has no claim to being called uh, a representative democracy. So how does it get reversed? I, well, I, I, well, let me just add on sure. that it's not just the political system that has been seized by the corporate state. It's the systems of communication, it's education, it's culture, uh, with an assault against those traditional liberal institutions that once made incremental and piecemeal reform possible. Labor unions, uh, the uh, you know public education, and in particular great universities like City University, which have been decimated. Um, you go to places like Harvard or Princeton, where I've taught, and they are run as corporations. Uh, the whole process of standardized testing, the winnowing out, the celebration of a very narrow analytic kind of intelligence embodied in figures like Lawrence Summers uh, is exactly what the corporate state wants. So that by the time you reach these elite institutions, you're perfectly molded and, uh, and, and of course, incredibly deferential to authority. Indeed, you, uh, most students at these institutions, by the time they get there, define, allow authority to define their success. Uh, and they are funneled uh, into the system to work as systems managers. Um, that's all they know how to do, uh, is serve that system. The, the whole withering away of the humanities. Uh, and I just spoke at Harvard where I went to graduate school, and there is certainly a very heavy push to turn Harvard into the Stanford of the East Coast, i.e. a giant technical university uh, with a vast medical research center and everything else uh, and, and let the humanities uh, atrophy. Uh, and this is writ large across the country. Of course, for-profit universities don't even provide humanities. And, and there is a huge difference between teaching people how to think, which classics do, and you're a classics major, uh, and teaching, and teaching people what to think. And we, we teach less and less people how to think. So we can't look at it as just a corruption of the political system. Uh, the, these corporate forces, I mean, half of the trustee board uh, of any university, including Harvard, with Robert Rubin, who sits on the board of overseers, should be in jail. And these uh, institutions celebrate that kind of money. The presidents of these institutions are judged solely on their capacity to raise money. Of course, they're paid like overcompensated CEOs. So we're talking about a, uh, a degeneration, not just within the political system, but throughout the entire culture. The, the real debate is being carried out by groups like Occupy. But it's not, it, 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 you know, the, 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 the struggling with the issues that actually mean something in the daily lives of Americans uh, are, are almost virtually absent from the commercial airwaves. So let me ask you, Professor Lessig, I mean, um, Chris Hedges just said that it's not just about the corrupting influence of money in politics, but there's a pervasive corrupting influence, and it goes really deep. You've proposed certain 
uh, reforms, or I'm not sure if that's the right word for them, to excise money from politics. Do you see that as the main issue? Do you recognize what Hedges is saying about this broader issue? Do you think your solution would address that broader issue? I, I think that there's a sequence of reform. Um, and uh, I completely agree about the way in which many institutions have been corrupted by a similar dynamic. I run an ethics center at Harvard that is focused on institutional corruption, which is this problem we see in government, but in every private institution you can imagine, including the academy. So I completely agree with that. But democratic politics was about the space where we could self-consciously decide how to make and remake a society. And if we can't reclaim that, um, we can't reclaim any of it. So I, 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 I wouldn't disagree with uh, the extraordinary range of work that has to be done across the spheres of society. But I think we actually have a moment and an opportunity where we could rally enough forces, this kind of diverse outsider forces. Um, and they're not even left-right. It's outsider-insider. That's the fundamental division. Enough. We could rally them in the way Hobbes thought of the sovereign as the sleeping giant. The sleeping giant can be awoken. And when the giant awakes, can reclaim enough power to, to fix a part of it and then begin the long work that will be required to fix all of it. Um, so I, I think it's a sequence question, not a disagreement about what the ultimate problem is. On Wednesday, we had the internet blackout and the sort of large movement against SOPA and PIPA, PIPA uh, the uh, internet piracy bills. Um, where millions and millions of people sent petitions and many people called Congress. Is that the sort of sleeping giant awakening that you're talking about? You know, spring comes in waves, and we've seen a whole series of these waves. Uh, and this is the latest. It's not, I mean, it was very impressive. It's not as impressive as what Occupy was. Um, um, but we can, we can talk about all of them. And you can see the way each time they happen, people begin to have a recognition that, you know, it's like the giant feeling the twitching of the fingers and, oh my gosh, I have a hand over here and then I have legs and I slowly begin to see how I can coordinate and begin to do things. So each of them is important. None of them has yet put it all together. Um, but I think we're on that, in that direction because the underlying cause of any of these things is not going away. You know, so that, and what is that underlying cause? Well, in my view, I'm going to ask you the same question. In my view, the underlying cause here is, is a deep corruption in many institutions, but let's just talk about the corruption inside of the government system, where um, because of the way in which we have embedded power, um, there's no connection to the original conception of a republic dependent upon the people alone, they're increasingly dependent upon funders, which, of course, are not the people. So there's this deep corruption inside the system that until we address, cannot make democracy function. And until democracy functions, people are going to say, fuck democracy. Why should I waste my time with democracy? So people criticize the Occupy movement for not engaging. The Occupy movement is being deeply rational for not engaging in normal politics because normal politics gets us Barack Obama, right? Look at, I mean, what we thought in 2008, normal politics machine would work, we'd get the reformer, we'd be on our way back to uh, happiness. But, uh, but obviously we've seen you know, it's gotten us nowhere. So what, in your view, is the underlying cause? The destruction of radical and populist movements, which began in World War I and culminated in the 1950s with communist witch hunts. So the Wobblies, the old CIO, the Communist Party, uh, the anarcho-syndicalist unions, all of these are wiped out. And, uh, and so the, the, you have a liberal class. The liberal class in any society 
is never has never been designed to be the left. It's designed to be the political center. The liberal class, it works as a kind of safety valve so that when there are widespread grievances and injustices, as we saw during the Great Depression, you have traditional liberals within the establishment like Henry Wallace, Roosevelt's vice president, or Roosevelt himself, who uh, give us the New Deal. That's, and as when Conrad Black writes his biography of Roosevelt, he said that Roosevelt's greatest accomplishment was that he saved capitalism, and that's right. Well, the destruction of those radical movements and then the disemboweling of liberal institutions. In the 1950s, you had thousands of university professors, uh, directors, artists, writers, uh, social workers. The social workers in this country, the union, used to agitate on behalf of their clients. All of it's wiped out. Great figures like I.F. Stone uh, can't get a job anywhere. Even at the Nation magazine, and starts I.F. Stone Weekly in, in, in his basement. And so essentially, we were left defenseless. Movements, all of the correctives to American democracy came through movements that never achieved formal political power. The Liberty Party that fought slavery, the suffragists for women's rights, the labor movement, the civil rights movement, so, and, and the destruction of those movements, coupled with a gutless liberal class, a kind of faux liberalism embodied in figures like Bill Clinton. I mean, what corporate giveaway did the Clinton administration not carry out? whether it's deregulating the FCC or NAFTA or uh, you know, destroying, ripping down Glass-Steagall, the firewall between commercial and investment banks. Again, the handiwork of Lawrence Summers, uh, who Obama has just proposed to go to the World Bank. Um, you know, they, they speak in that traditional language of liberalism uh, and yet betray every one of the sort of fundamental or core values that a liberal would embrace. And uh, I, I think that that is emblematic of how deeply decayed the system is. And let me just finally say that the ideology that has been promoted by the corporate state, whereby we are supposed to kneel before the, mar the marketplace, that, that all uh, uh, human needs must be sacrificed uh, because of the marketplace, defies you know, 3,000 years of economic history and, and human nature. Um, it's a utopian ideology, and it, it's been exposed as a lie. Uh, and, and I think that, that the death of that utopian ideology, which is becoming increasingly apparent, apparent not only to the American worker but to the global workforce, uh, which is, of course, on this downward spiral where American workers are told that they have to be competitive on a global level with women who work in sweatshops in Bangladesh for 22 cents an hour or prison labor in China, the, the, it's the death of this utopian ideology coupled with the utter corruption of an extremely, as Professor Lessing pointed out, this incredibly tiny, narrow, oligarchic elite, uh, which in my mind means the system is not reformable, um, but will have to be pushed aside. And I think that in that sense the Occupy movement is, in sort of classical terms, correctly defined as a revolutionary movement. So do you, I mean, it seems a little bit like th those two answers we're talking past each other. You're talking about a mechanism whereby people's voices cannot be heard in the political system because it's been purchased. And you're talking, it seems like, about the consequences of that, the sort of, um, the destruction of correctives to American democracy, perhaps by corporations who recognize them as threats. 
No, I'm saying that he, I'm agreeing with Professor Lesson on the political aspect, mm -hmm. but I'm saying that the other avenues of public expression, for instance, the media, have been shut down. Uh, opportunities of education um, are increasingly uh, confined to the elite. But can I, so to, just to interrupt you again, do you, I mean, do you think, you said you don't think reform is possible, and why? I don't think appealing to the systems of power will make the kinds of reforms that we want to see possible. And do you see the, the, an attempt to extract money from politics as an appeal to those systems of power? Sure, because it's got to pass through Congress. And these are just, these guys are, are fully, you know, the, the congressional, the legislative branches, both at the state and federal level, are wholly owned subsidiaries of the corporate state. So how, and maybe you could take a step back and explain a little bit of your project and say how you address that critique, which seems to be you know, a very powerful one. How do you expect the captured powers to go along with you as you try and remove the influence of corporate money from politics? So I'm not convinced that it's uh, wrong to say that the existing Washington structure uh, is unreformable. Um, uh, and in my book I talk about, you know, the only outsider reform movement which the Constitution left open to us, which is a convention process. Um, and Sorry, could you just say the name of your book? And yeah, so, I, so my book is Republic Lost. Um, and and the, you know, the framers in Article 5 say amendments can happen through Congress, and then somebody said, well, what if Congress is the problem? And they said, okay, fine. Uh, states can say, let's have a convention. The convention proposes amendments, and the amendments go through the states. And then the question is, to what extent really have the same powers that have taken over Washington taken over the states? Um, and uh, Chris might be right. I don't know. Uh, uh, my view is, um, even if I think there's no chance, you've got to do everything you possibly can to win. Uh, so so uh, I don't really care you know, whether he's right or not. It's not going to change what I think we need to do, which is this is the only path we have for trying to insert radical change into the system that doesn't depend upon congressmen voting on it. Um, uh, no congressman has to vote on this. Uh, and and so, uh, so that's what I think we ultimately are going to The only path on. being that you would convene an article, that you would convene a convention? Article 5 convention that would, you know, symbolize and, and create enough political momentum around it that it would be very hard for people to stand down from it. Um, uh, now, I don't think a convention, you know, one of the... Um, fundamental view, uh, positions I have about this reform movement is that there's two things happening at the same, that have to happen at the same time. One thing is, uh, as somebody from the left, uh, I celebrate the leftist reform movements that are reviving themselves and to get expression in the Occupy movement. And I think all of those are extremely important. We haven't had those enough, maybe 1950 is a mark, I don't know when it is, but it's sometime in a long time. Uh, and they have to become powerful and really vibrant again. But at the same time, I think we have to recognize, at least in the conventional way that I'm talking about, and I don't mean convention there, I mean the conventional way that I'm talking about, uh, one faction never achieves fundamental reform. We have to find a way to talk about fundamental reform that isn't just about one faction. Um, and so at this, this is kind of bizarre, it's kind of odd to see whether it's even possible, but can we put two things together at the same time? One is a revival of this leftist movement and a recognition that the leftist movement might need to find um, not common ground, but a common enemy. Uh, so it might need to be an alliance in the sense that 
you can imagine somebody like a Stalin sitting with uh, a Roosevelt against a common alliance, uh, against a common enemy. Um, and, and that's what I wonder here. I wonder whether there isn't a grassroots movement that could express its anger about this corruption clearly and forcefully enough that it didn't have to get in, that this part of it didn't have to get into, you know, whether once we fix the system we're going to have progressive taxes or no taxes. Uh, and in my view, that's the only hope to affecting a constitutional change. Now, maybe we'll just, you know, some people just want to get rid of it. Let's have a real revolution, have a new government that's the end of this uh, constitution. I'm not there. You know, that's not my game, but I understand it. Do you think that, I mean, Professor Lessig said this is the only path for inserting change in our system. I've like quoted that right. Do you think that's right? No, I, I think that the only path left is civil disobedience. And I've seen that you, I'll just expand on that then because you brought it up and I, I've seen you write that. What, can you define what is the scope of civil disobedience as you understand it? Well, mass acts that defy the law of the land in a nonviolent way. I don't think that, um, I mean, I'd be curious to hear sort of the nuts and bolts of Professor Lessing's idea of how it would work. Uh, I, I think that the state has played its hand, and when it shut down the 18 occupying encampments, uh, that if it had uh, any capacity to uh, hear the voices of the people. Congress only has a 9% approval rating, so most Americans uh, absolutely detest uh, everything that they're doing. It doesn't make any difference. Um, you know, nobody supported the FISA Reform Act. 80% uh, of Democrats supported a public option, and yet Obama scuttled it and turned Obamacare over to lobbyists who wrote it, and it ended up being $400 billion in subsidies to the pharmaceutical insurance industry. I mean, you know, it's just there's sort of an endless train of examples that uh, the legislative process just does not respond even when the vast majority of the Americans want something. It, it doesn't matter. It's not relevant. Um, so uh, I think we also have to bring in the environmental crisis. We just have very, very little time left, and the fossil fuel industry is killing us, quite literally. It's, of course, killing the planet. How do you break the back of ExxonMobil? Uh, uh, we're not going to do it uh, through uh, this process because ExxonMobil owns this process. Yeah, I, I think I'm not convinced. Of, I think that you have to, we should avoid either or. I think these two things have to happen at the same time. Um, I'll confess to a certain cowardice about um, you know, it's brought about by a recognition of the absolute. Uh, ex absolutely extraordinary power that is is deployed against civil disobedience in our country. You know, like when Israel had three hundred thousand people marching, the police officers around those marchers had no guns. They just were police officers there to keep the peace. Um, and you look at the Oakland events. And, you know, it's like a military invasion from a Star Wars episode, right? It's, like, extraordinary. And, and the unrepentant display of force embraced by everybody, you know, it's like, well, this is what... And, and, in fact, the polling then, seeing, you know, the American public back away from support because of the conflict of violence, makes me fearful that running down the path that would force that kind of confrontation 
would lead to, first of all, extraordinary amount of blood, and number two, it's not clear what the thing on the other side is. So I'm happy to run down the path of more and more pressure, as much as we can get. Um, but we live in a, you know, not how, just... How, a, how, you, how do you exert it? If you, if you don't use the kinds of obstructionist tactics that the Occupy movement, I think, has used successfully, and of course, they want us to be afraid. I mean, that's the whole point. Um, and it's not fun. I mean, I just spent all morning in court after being arrested in Goldman Sachs and going to jail is more time than I care to donate to the U.S. government, frankly, to quote Wendell Berry. But I don't really see that we have any option left, and uh, certainly Bill McKibben agrees with that. Berry, who occupied the governor's office in uh, Kentucky over mountaintop removal, agrees with that. Cornell West agrees with that. Uh, I, I, I want to know how, how are we going to bring that pressure uh, if we are not willing to put our bodies on the line. Yeah, but again, I'm not saying don't put your bodies on the line. I am saying let's not put bodies on the line that we can see predictably is going to produce you know, tanks on the other side um, because you know, countries can be brought to being the Chinese very quickly and our country is very close to being the Chinese uh, in this sense, very quickly. So I, I'm happy to, I, I want these movements to create that kind of pressure. But I think we also have to open up a, a release valve on the other side. That's, which is a, a way to imagine creating a situation where people don't actually need to be in the streets in the same way. So, but, but what would that look like? I don't understand how it would work. Well, so if there were at the same time that there's these Occupy movements, the Occupy movement's pushing for the thing which Washington fears the most, a convention. So going to legislatures. And there are a lot of relatively sane, you know, not at the center of corporate power legislatures, for example, New Hampshire has 400 legislators, right? Um, these are not people who spend much time with lobbyists because nobody can afford to. Okay, so you begin this process of pushing towards um, the convention-like reform, and what I imagine happens is what happened 100 years ago, literally exactly 100 years ago, when the last time we came close to a convention, calling for the uh, election of senators, because the Senate at the time was conceived to be the source of all corruption inside of government, um, we came within one vote, and Congress very quickly sent an amendment out to get the senators as uh, elected because they didn't want to see the convention. So the convention is a peaceful form of terrorism here that would really shake up, you know. The, and and I, I think that that should be on the table as much as you know reviving in the spring um, uh, Occupy movements. Well, everything should be on the table. Um, on the other hand. I think I have a darker view of the systems of power. Uh, I think they're so calcified and so corrupt. Uh, and I think that there's pretty good evidence that a lot of these corp corporations are just harvesting the country. They know it's over. They're grabbing as much as fast as they can, including looting the U.S. Treasury, on the way out the door. I think there's a really deep cynicism. Um, of course, uh, nurtured in places like Harvard Business School. Um, I think they... They get it. I mean, they, they probably wouldn't disagree with our analysis at all. Uh, and, and yet we have no mechanisms now to stop them. Uh, there is no way to vote against the interests of Goldman Sachs. Obama has proved utterly useless in terms of curbing these class of speculators who uh, are using taxpayer dollars to reinflate the, the bubble all over again and make themselves as much money as they can before it crashes. I mean, it's really quite staggering. No, uh, the, the failure of reform is the biggest signal that the system is totally corrupt. I mean, it's one thing to imagine the buying of deregulation before 2008. Right. 
But what should terrify everybody, even you know, conservatives, is the fact that after this crisis, for the first time in American history, the government didn't have the power right. to respond right. to real reform. Yeah, so, but we don't have, you know, we haven't actually liquidated a difference in um, our views about the probability of succeeding on the second path or on the first path. Um, because again, my view is even if I think this other path is zero probability of succeeding, I still think it's a path that we have to push. Right, well, you know, in the end, it's a kind of moral imperative. Yeah. Um, and if you, I covered all the revolutions in Eastern Europe, uh, East Germany, Czechoslovakia, Romania. Spent every night with Václav Havel and in the Magic Lantern, um, and I think that that's how we have to think of it. That that this is uh, this is morally where we have to be, uh, and um, because I mean, literally, these corporations which have commodified everything—human labor, the natural world—will will exploit them until collapse or exhaustion. Yeah, but the difference is that. Um when those political cultures collapsed, the people at the top just literally didn't have the resources to fight. Um, and, and it wasn't bloody. I mean, it's right. kind of amazing how little blood there was in that extraordinary right. change. But if the same thing happened here, there's a lot of money at the top. But I think that the whole tactic of the Occupy movement is to not attack the pillars of the establishment, but divide them. To to you know constantly remind the blue uniform police that they are not the one percent, and that when you create these divisions within the pillars, I mean the fact that that Occupy essentially realizes that the corporate media is not going to, I mean this kind of a discussion is never going to make it even on MSNBC, um, which is just serves the Democratic Party the way Fox serves the lunatic fringe of the Republican Party. Not as well. Um, not as well, and and so they just create their own media. That the, that the pepper spraying of the students at UC Davis or the pepper spraying of the women in New York by Anthony Bologna, uh, which, were, which were monumental in galvanizing not only support for the movement but revulsion at the tactics used against this movement, came out of the media that the Occupy movement created. Mm -hmm. And I think that the more that they create parallel structures, uh, they, they not only uh, show... Uh, the outside world another way to form interactions, social uh, and even political interactions through the GA and everything else. Um, but they, uh, they, they create fissures within the pillars of the establishment. And, and you know, I was in, uh, in Leipzig for all of the demonstrations before the wall came down, and there was a moment when uh, the ruler of East Germany, Eric Honecker, sent down an elite paratroop division. It was a night there were 70,000 marchers in Leipzig. And, and because he realized that as these numbers grew, it was only by using draconian force that he had any chance of regaining control. And, and, uh, and they, wouldn't, they wouldn't fire on the crowd. And at that moment, it's over. I mean, people forget that the Russian Revolution was a peaceful event. It was the Bolsheviks who carried out a, a, a coup d'etat. But but it was it was it was when the Cossacks and the elite units went to Petrograd right. yeah. and refused to fire on the crowds that it was finished and I, and I think that that very much is part of the uh, brilliance of the Occupy movement um, of, of creating those divisions between the the sort of white shirted inspectors and and the rank and file within the police and I think that 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 is the way to go and that is most dangerous to 
the power elite. Just to bring it back to your proposal, in terms of, Chris was talking about Occupy creating parallel structures, other ways to interact with each other and to govern you know, groups of people. I mean, you're talking about working within, you know, there's a provision in the Constitution that allows people to change the structure of it. Does that, and you say we could work on multiple fronts, but would that, like, draw energy off from this other type of activity? I don't know why it has to, because that type of activity wants to find ways to express its effectiveness, and this is one way to express its effectiveness. You know, I think that the Occupy movement, I don't purport to speak or even understand, uh, but um, the Occupy movement doesn't want to become the Tea Party in the sense they don't want to become quickly aligned with a whole bunch of inside Washington lobbyists on our side of the issue as opposed to you know the other side of the issue. Um, but I think that there is a real value in demonstrating um, you know the the way in which these alternative structures restructure society, um, and one way in which they do this is by beginning to exercise control over the government that the government itself doesn't control. I mean, that is a quite extraordinary thing. We've never done it, right? So what if we did it? Um, what would that mean? Um, and uh, um, the inspiration of the Occupy, there's an extraordinary thing happening in Vermont right now where Vermont is pushing, people are pushing for a convention resolution in Vermont coming from the Occupy movement. But nobody, none of, you know, none of the real leaders there are people who are, you know, intense. Uh, they're, they're people who are intense in their in the inspiration that, uh, that this has caused. So I agree, it's about reframing power, but let's talk about all the places reframed power can have an effect. And, and maybe there's a 0.01% chance that it has an effect in this path, but, um, but it's worth it. It's worth it. To of course it's worth it. Yeah. It seems like you've sort of have different approaches, but have come around to saying, well, all approaches are good. Well, not all approaches are good. I would say all approaches that seek to delegitimize the centers of power are good uh, and useful, and we need a multiplicity of approaches, as I think we're both in agreement upon, and um, sitting around wringing our hands about whether they're going to succeed or not uh, before we try right. is a waste of time. Uh, we should just try. If it doesn't work, we'll try something else. Right. <laughs> And do you and that would you agree that anything that sort of is destabilizing the sort of central concentration of power is useful? Would you accept that as a, a way of thinking about your project? Yeah, well, my focus is on the particular concentration of power inside the Beltway of Washington that destroys all sorts of social possibility, and and and, and that's the thing I'm going to destabilize first. Uh, of course, that does a lot for what happens down here in downtown New York too. So that's a that's a consequence of destabilizing that power. But, um, but I have a sequence, and that's what I want to start. I guess I have just one last question, and it's a little unfair because it probably calls for a long answer, but destabilizing that power first seems to call for a movement of such a size that maybe it wouldn't really be interested in the end project of reforming electoral politics into the current system. You know, actually, I don't think that's true. Um, you know, one of the most interesting consequences of Citizens United is that these people who used to be the barons of Washington the incumbents, are all of a sudden the vassals of Washington because they are so terrified of this independent expenditures coming in and dropping on their campaign 30 days out. And the only way they can avoid the destruction is to run to a super PAC on their own side and get insurance. And how do you get insurance? You pay for it in advance. And how do you pay for it in advance? You vote and do exactly what that super PAC wants you to do so that when the bombs drop, they have the reason to come in and support you. So all of a sudden, 
And I saw Evan Bai talk about this, and it was just struck me, like, obvious, right? All of a sudden, these guys, who used to be the most important people, are just one more set of vassals inside of this power structure, in exactly the way Chris was describing it. The real power has been shown, and these guys don't have it. And they don't like it. Like, they don't want to be in Washington as, you know, it's bad enough to have to be raising money all the time. But if you really aren't the power, and you can't even hide it to yourself anymore, then they're going to want something different. So I, I think that this is not stable. It's not a stable uh, uh, equilibrium the way it was before Citizens United. Before Citizens United, it was stable. These guys just had the power. They liked it. And, and they played games with corporate power or whoever had to play games with. But they don't play it. They don't like this anymore. So, so I understand the sense in which taking on the king sounds like the wrong thing to do. How you take it on is extremely important. But this is a moment, this is more the French Revolution moment. This is a moment when everything is falling apart at the same time. Um, and I think there's a reason to be pushing on every front at the same time. Well, thank you guys both so much. Um, I hope that you will continue to talk to each other today and uh, maybe challenge each other a little bit. Um, thank you to the media team and to Livestream for bringing this, and to uh, Aaron Bornstein who organized this talk. Uh, for bringing it together. It's been really cool. Great, thanks. Thanks. As Professor Lessig just said, this is a French Revolution moment, a point at which everything is coming unraveled at the same time. But, you know, uh, it doesn't seem like the status quo has been working out so well for the vast majority of our fellow humans. And so perhaps the fact that so many things seem to be falling apart, uh, well, maybe that's not so bad. As I've mentioned before, the work of the Nobel Prize-winning chemist Dila Prigozhin has been extrapolated and uh, has shown that even in complex soups like civilizations, uh, everything seems to have to jiggle loose into a more chaotic mixture before it can uh, reorganize at a higher level. And that's what I think is going on right now. But uh, in order to help us all maybe rejiggle into a place of calm right now, I'm going to close by playing a new song from my friend and fellow podcaster, Jesse Miller, who you can find on iTunes and through the Mystic Mind podcast, where he provides much of his music for free. And the song you'll be hearing is Into Your Heart, and it's uh, sung by singer-songwriter Jesse Miller. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friend. <laughs>